This week on the Saber.com podcast, the Virginia football team has won three in a row. We look back at Duke and ahead to Georgia Tech. Plus, we start gearing up for basketball season with a look at the blue-white scrimmage. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, thesaber.com. Time again for the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman, your host. Each week, we discuss the happenings with UVA Sports with editor Chris Wright and associate editor Chris Horn. And lots to get into this week, guys. We'll talk about the blue and white basketball scrimmage, men's and women's basketball underway in that fashion to kind of get uh, the fans excited and everything. Still a few weeks away from the start of the season, but uh, man, can't wait to, to see some of these new guys. And uh, Chris Wright was in attendance for that one. So we'll get a firsthand recap of that. And Women's soccer, congrats to them. Big win over nationally ranked Notre Dame. And uh, they've got a couple more games before the, the big matchup versus, uh, well, UVA is second ranked in the country and Florida State number one in the country. So that's uh, a few days away, but we look forward to that in, uh, in terms of women's soccer. But let's get into football, guys. First things first, big, big win over Duke. And I was uh, admittedly a, a little leery of this game because – I just thought Duke would come out and throw everything but the kitchen sink at us. And they may have tried that, but their kitchen sink was, <laughs> they need a repair man. It was uh, hapless was the word that ESPN used in their, their recap. I think that pretty much sums it up. 48 to nothing. Great uh, offensive and defensive effort. Chris Wright, where do you begin with your uh, analysis on this one? Actually, wasn't all that surprised that Virginia won comfortably. You know, in my pick, I had thought that they would win comfortably. I, I thought maybe a 20-point win, a three-touchdown win, a 48 to nothing win, I don't think anyone saw coming. But if you look at kind of the recent history, Virginia has had very good success against Duke. They're obviously undefeated in the Mendenhall era, but a couple of the most recent scores have ended up lopsided. I think it was 38-20 last year and something like 48-14 or 44-14 or something like that in 2019. So, so I felt pretty good about it, but yeah, 48 to zero first shutout in the ACC, I believe since 2008, when they shut out Maryland, if I'm remembering what the notes said correctly, first time since 2008, they had two shutouts in the same season. So I don't think anybody saw all of that coming, right? Where they would just dominate both sides of the ball, have no explosive touchdowns allowed, which is a problem for the defense periodically, or really it had become a problem where it was every single game here lately. But the ability for the defense to, to step up and get the shutout, I think was kind of the story of the day, but the offense could do pretty much whatever it wanted. It felt like, you know, they ran the ball well when they decided to, they passed the ball short when they wanted to, they got some intermediate deep shots when they wanted to. The offense felt very much in control of, of what was going to happen. It didn't seem like Duke had an answer. And I know they tried some different things. They pressured here and there. They dropped some here and there. None of it seemed to work. But I do remember on the first lengthy completion to Wicks, it was maybe a 15, 18, 20-yard completion, something like that. On the very first drive of the game, I was standing next to Jay James, who does the sideline reporting. And on that particular play, Duke did not send a lot of people. And I'm not kidding. It felt like Brennan had time to, like, communicate with the sideline. Hey, what are you guys seeing over there? Uh Who's open? Oh, wait, who, who did you say? Oh, that guy. <laughs> like, it felt like that long. I mean, it was it was this incredibly long time. And I said to Jay, you can't do that with him anymore. Even if you drop, you have to do something to, to disrupt, right? You can't just let him sit there and kind of wait and wait and wait and wait. A, he's too good. He'll find somebody. B, I think Virginia has too many weapons. Somebody's going to get open if you give them that long, even if you're dropping that many in coverage. So pretty dominant effort. You know, Coach Mendenhall said he was surprised by the margin. So convincing win, and now one win away from bowl eligibility. So, you know, that's always the first check mark. I know all the other people and the reporters are, are, are you still in the coastal race? Do you think you're still in the coastal? First things first, let's check off bowl eligibility, stay in the race, go through those two non-conference games and see where things stand when mid-November gets there. It's interesting when people are bringing up the coastal stuff or so early in the, <laughs> early in the season, given the way that the coastal goes every single year, it's just like, it, it kind of keeps you guessing up until the end. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of funny. I, I was on the flip side of Chris. I thought Virginia would have some trouble, uh, kind of like for a few reasons, reasons like you mentioned, Jeff, like, you know, Duke coming in, you know, coming off a tough loss, but felt like, you know, obviously having lost five or six straight to Virginia, there was going to be motivation there and the offense was going pretty well. And their you know, defense wasn't, wasn't good, but they, you know, had some, had some guys who could, 
you know, on the defensive line that coming in looked like they could get some pressure and, and things like that. I still thought ultimately Virginia was going to have too many weapons and just be too much for Duke. Although, again, I thought it was going to be a, a better game. It, it would have been interesting. I mean, you saw um, – I think Duke had the start that they probably wanted. They held Virginia to a field goal on Virginia's opening drive drove all the way down inside the 10 and had Jake Bobo, who was a uh, open for a touchdown, basically on third and six from the Virginia seven uh, went through his hands. I know it was a, it was a, it was a hard pass, but he, he's known for his hands. And so that's definitely, was a play that he needed to make. He didn't make, and then clang another field goal off the, uh, the upright for Virginia. And then there was another play. I forgot the exact drive is, esca- is escaping me, but it was early on where uh, a Duke cornerback, I believe had an interception and it could have easily been a pick six, and he, that went right through, right off his 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 uh, his shoulder pads. And it seemed like since the after that, you know, Virginia just kind of got on a roll, and then Duke really didn't put up much of a fight after that. So I was I was kind of surprised at the way it went. But yeah, this series has kind of been lopsided, really, uh, in the Mendenhall era. You look at the past three years, you know, fifteen turnovers by Duke. I mean, that's just crazy. And then this year, you know, the Virginia defense coming in only had four turnovers uh, up until that game, and they they come up with four turnovers against Duke. So, you know, it's just kind of for whatever reason, Virginia is able to play well. And I thought, you know, obviously, again, I thought the Virginia offense was going to have too many weapons. As Chris mentioned, it was great to see Dontavian Wicks back. And he looked like like his old self, like he didn't look like he was slowed at all. Uh, I thought Jelani Woods looks like he's getting – more and more more healthy so that was good to see but as far as defensively I thought the Virginia defense um, was was the story as far as you know being able to make plays I think the defensive line to me continues to stand out they're getting consistent pressure and playing uh, consistent consistently well even though they're pretty thin unit they're playing pretty well and uh, I think that's been a tr- trending upwards the past three weeks you know forcing turnovers is, is a positive thing but I, I didn't think Duke had any weapons that really like like we've seen like North Carolina have and Louisville have in terms of a lot of speed on the at the receiver positions that can really beat Virginia so you, Duke really needed to keep this kind of a low scoring game so once Virginia got up pretty pretty big I think that kind of took the wind out of their sails but the, I think the Virginia defense seemed like they felt like they knew that Duke could not do much against them and and they did a, uh, Virginia did a great job on Durant and really Holmberg I think was kind of exposed a little bit yeah as you mentioned uh, Chris Horn two fumbles two interceptions UVA defense and when you can get that many turnovers in any game you're going to be in good shape so what did you notice uh, in terms of individual play on the defensive end? Or was there anything schematic? Uh, Nick Jackson uh, leading the way with 11 total tackles. And we haven't seen a lot of turnovers. <laughs> I thought they were going to bust out a chain at one point when they got up on the, the bench on the sideline. We're whooping it up with the crowd and everything. The enthusiastic uh, folks that were there for homecomings weekend. It was, you know, the, the crowd was lessened, I guess, because of part, partly because of the weather and because it was Duke maybe, but uh, it's good to see that excitement, you know, coming off the, the sidelines, the defense, not just being uh, worn down throughout the course of the game and, and giving up yards all over the place. There's something about Duke, right? Like every single year, it feels like of the Hall era, it's not one turnover. It's one after another, after another, after another. And that happened again, right? Like, even on the one to preserve the shutout, that meant nothing. A fumbled snap from the, what, one-foot line? A fumble on the one-foot line for a meaningless score, they just seem snake bit against Virginia when it comes turnovers, like just year after year. Now, I, I said that was a meaningless stop. The reaction of Noah Taylor and Kelly Popinga, which I happened to catch a photo of, and Nick Howell off to the side of that, was much more than, than meaningless. They were really, really happy that the backups – uh, got that stop to a preserve the shutout, but B, you know, finding success when they got their opportunity in terms of individuals, Mandy Alonzo was the ACC defensive lineman of the week. Again, um, obviously Joy Blunt had uh, interception Devontae cross had an interception. So there's three super seniors all doing something during the game. West weeks is somebody that jumped out. You know, Chris has been on that train since the spring. I gave him credit on the message board this morning for that. Like, Hey, keep an eye on West weeks. He might be one of the freshmen that finds their way out there. I think he looks really good. You know, Jameer Carter, it's playing better, I think. I don't know if it's super obvious, but 
from taking pictures during the Wake Forest game on the sideline to then taking pictures almost a month later or three weeks later on the sideline, he just seemed better to me. I think the use of Jordan Redmond at nose tackle is helping the defense, even though he's not grading out super well in pro football focus, it feels like that's helping the defense as a whole, just having a little more rotation on the defensive line. So those are just some names that jump out to me that, that played pretty well. Darius Bratton played a lot of snaps. I thought he played well. But anytime you have a shutout, you could probably go through each person on the 11 and say, hey, they played this play pretty well, or they did this pretty well. You don't get to 48-0 with individuals. That's a collective deal. Well, and Chris Horn, as you mentioned, uh, the luck uh, continuing with another doink on the, the field goal kicker for Duke early. But there seemed to be a, a few plays that UVA was a beneficiary. It seemed like we fumbled three or four times. There was one sequence. It was like three plays in a row. And a lot of that was due to the rain, but you know, the ball's just bouncing right back to UVA. There was a play where Armstrong had it kind of knocked out of his hand and a very uh, heads up play by, I believe it was the tight end who jumped in there getting right on the ball before Duke could get to it. So it's good to have that, that little bit of luck on your side too. when when things are rolling like that. Yeah. I think, well, kind of like Chris said, uh, Duke being snake, but I think that kind of falls into that category as well. The ball kind of bounces Virginia's way like the Duke, cornerback having a surefire interception go right off his chest but yeah just the just the <laughs> ball bouncing Virginia's way it kind of just really uh really snowballed again in those first two or two or three series and then it uh then it really you know got out of control obviously 34 and you're up 34 nothing at halftime that's a pretty good spot to be in and again keeping on the defense train a little bit yeah, I mean, the defensive line just from – and Chris mentioned Jordan Redmond. It, yeah, it seems like they have pretty good chemistry going. Like, I think they're – they uh, you know, obviously Alonzo, I think Famui um, and his pro football fa- focus grades are kind of uh, showing this, is that he, he may be kind of playing more consistently, kind of returning to that, to that 2019 Aaron Famui after he, he struggled a lot, according to the pro football's fo- focus grades in the first five games. So, I think, you know, you're going to have – you know, Alonzo, of course, has to be there every week. And then Famui has to be there. And Carter has to be there. And, yeah, I think Carter has made some plays, you know, against Louisville. I, I remember he – I think it was third and one running play late in the game. One of the one of the stops UVA had to make, he made a, a stop on third and one on a run play. So, he's he's making some plays and playing well. Again, that unit is is pretty thin, I think. You know, Jordan Redmond, I think, has come in and, and helped. And, again, I think there's some good chemistry there. You know, some of the younger guys, less experienced guys like Ben Smiley, uh, Sue Agunloyer, and, and Nusi Milani, I think they're still trying to find consistency. And I think Coach Mendenhall has mentioned, mentioned that as well. But so far, I think that unit definitely is trending in the right direction. So just cross your fingers that there's no injuries or anything like that. I like the chemistry going on there. And then at linebacker, it was good to see, you know, uh, you know Chris mentioned West Weeks, who had several nice plays, including a nice uh, pass deflection early in the game, which I believe ended a drive or it helped uh, uh, bring a, a drive to an end. But Josh Ahern, I believe he's like a redshirt sophomore, came in, played pretty well, played some pretty significant snaps. So it's good to see some depth kind of showing at the line on um, at the linebacker unit. And then, um, you know, the defensive backs with, uh, you know, Bratton, again, playing well. Joey Blount, uh, good to good to see him uh, back uh, on the field. Uh, Nick Grant, I thought uh, looked like he played pretty well, also. So just a you know from top to bottom, really just a really good, impressive unit from the defense, and just a matter of keeping it going. Can they be consistent? It, obviously, not allowing big plays is huge. You know, with Georgia Tech coming to town, they're one thing that I've noticed about them is that they're a, they're an offense that can get some big plays. So that will challenge that this week. So that'll be interesting to see if they can keep that consistency going. Before we move on from defense, West Weeks, Josh Ahern, the two young linebackers, Jonas Sanker. We talked about Malachi Field several times. So here's another local kid here to Charlottesville, played at Covenant. He looks like the future Joey Blunt, Quinn Blanding type, that, that kind of guy that can roam all around the secondary and do different things. He just looks the part to me. I don't Small sample size so far, but he looks right to me. Well, he made, yeah, he made a, a really good tackle. I think one of his first plays in, he's got speed. Like to me, one thing I noticed about Sanker is his speed. And that's one thing Virginia needs in that defensive backfield is speed. So he kind of reminds me of like Brenton Nelson in that aspect in terms of like, you can see that the speed looks real. We don't have a big sample size on him, but just his, just his physical size with Anthony Poindexter being honored. Number 27, Langston Long being out there. He's 6'2", 215. 
he kind of reminded me of Anthony Poindexter when he was out there in terms of, you know, just a big, big safety, uh, safety type. You know, obviously if he turns into that, <laughs> I think Virginia's fans are going to be pretty happy, but yeah, another, you know, I feel like it's been a while since we've been seen like a, uh, a safety like the size of a point extra out there. And, you know, of course, point extra was so great with what he could do, not just as a safety, but the versatility of, you know, playing close to the line of scrimmage and everything he could do. So, but yeah, Langston Long kind of reminded me of that. He's another first year who's seen some, some snaps this season. Well, and just to uh, go over those uh, first half drives guys on the offense, field goal, touchdown, 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 field goal. And there was a late interception uh, that led to another touchdown. So at halftime, like you said, 34 nothing. And I, I sort of half jokingly sent you guys a text uh, there with that drive when we're up 24 nothing. And there, I think there were three incompletions in a row. And that's one of my, you know, I don't have too many pep peeves. It probably sounds like I do when it comes to football. But uh, <laughs> in this case, I was all in favor of the bubble screens and, the, you know, the pick plays and let's run something. Okay. We don't want to run the ball, traditional run game up the middle, but just a little, just flick it into the backfield we have plenty of guys that are fast that can do multiple things that are hard to bring down make it easy on yourself don't be throwing these out route like the first play on that drive we went for the jugular it's like okay i'm i'm all for scoring you know 60 70 points because and it's funny too psychologically we all have in the back of our mind i mean duke's going to run up at least 20 30 points here like we need to keep scoring keep scoring keep scoring if we had known you know we were going to shut them out it's like the game plan might have been a little different but it, it is funny that mentality of like modern football you just got to keep scoring and here we gave them the ball back with like two minutes left so I'm thinking okay Duke's going to come down it'll be 27-7 at the half or whatever and uh you know we did only get a field goal out of that that second to last drive but sure enough interception then UVA comes all the way down scores another touchdown 34 nothing so Showed you how much I know, right? Yeah, I texted you back. I said, you can't score 50 running the football, Jeff. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I'm just that like, close kill to the clock. I got a text from another buddy at, at, right at the end of the half that that was a perfect half of football from Virginia. And it was close. Obviously, you had to settle for a couple of field goals. And a, I think it was the first half, a little bit lucky with the, the one that deflected in the air, you know, bouncing their way or whatever that, that you guys were talking about. But yeah, I mean, 34 nothing at half pretty dominant, almost perfect half of football. And just to go on the offensive part, the last score of the half was another, hey, just send Jelani Woods over there. And if there's a corner, throw it over there. (laughs) Now, he didn't get inside leverage. We talked about that last week. We said if he gets inside leverage, he he wins. Well, this time he didn't get inside leverage. The corner took that away. But Brennan just threw a back shoulder throw. So you still have to go through Woods to get to the ball uh, on that back shoulder throw. And, yeah, good luck if you're a corner, right? Watching it from the sideline, being as close as, as we are able to be to take those pictures, Jelani Woods is just a huge, huge, huge person. <laughs> he is not a small dude. And I would be a corner, I guess, if, if football, you know, maybe a, re- a slot receiver or something. There's no way I could get through him to knock the ball away. <laughs> no way. Right. I can't get anywhere close to, to where. And I feel like the corners feel that way some. Was that the one he kind of? juggled a little bit and then yeah, the caught up between his legs. And, oh <laughs> yeah. man, what a catch, what concentration. I'm, I'm so glad he stuck with it. Cause it seemed like at first he almost thought he had it. And then if it had gotten knocked away, he felt like he had the touchdown, but I think the replay showed it. It wouldn't have been, you know, until he had it there at the very, very end, that was the <laughs> confirmation. So yeah. When the Duke guy tried to punch it out, if he had knocked it out, I think it would have been called incomplete because he never yeah. had complete control of it until that last second. Mm-hmm. But Is yeah, that why Jelani was pointing at him? <laughs> right. So, like for the for the punch or something. Well, because the punch was um, well, because of where the ball was located, uh, right, the right, punch right, may have right. felt a little offensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll just leave it that way. <laughs> but I like you know, that, the back. I was surprised to see the back shoulder throughout. For me, it's Jelani either on the inside levered slant or fade. But hey, I guess he, they said he can do the back shoulder throw too. But I just like that that option in the red zone. Yeah, yes. We're seeing a little better finishing off drive success. I think they finished all the drives off that they got into, what, plus 40 territory. So, you know, that that's a big step forward from the Wake Forest game. You know, when they went forward on fourth down and didn't score and all that, all that kind of stuff. 
That's something Greg points out in his grades a lot. That's a, one of his major grading components. And then Coach Mendenhall mentioned it in the post game too. That you know we we put a lot of attention on that because we feel like that's going to be important. Yeah, it's just it's good to see them finish off plays in the red zone as part of an almost perfect half. Johnny Woods is part of that. Keaton Thompson had a rushing touchdown. You obviously have the Darrington touchdown, the Ronnie Walker touchdown. So traditional running game touchdowns in the red zone are good too, because that's one reason why I think Virginia struggles a little bit when they get inside the 20 is they can't always just line up. Here's a run play. We went, you know, mano a mano, Antonio Rice, Ty Lewis, Ahmad Hawkins type style that they talk about on the pregame radio that they were talking about it driving in be able to line up and run the football sometimes. Well, red zone is one of those, right? So to get two traditional rushing touchdowns out of those two backup running backs with Highlands out this week and, you know, Tala Papa had, had played earlier in the game, obviously. But yeah, I mean, that's that's a good sign too. So can they translate all that going forward? We'll see. But I think there are some signs on, on offense, particularly when they get down near the end zone that things are improving. Yeah, let's look ahead to the Georgia Tech game, guys. Uh, coming up this weekend, as no rest for the wicked seems like every other team has had a bye week but uh, uva's bye week is is late this year it seems like so what does georgia tech bring to the table uh, three and three record on the year so far and as uh, we've seen with chris wright's you know transitive properties don't apply so <laughs> here i was worried about duke and the their stat line was just completely uh, opposite of what they've been doing all year so what do you think uh, georgia tech beat duke 31-27, and they are coming off a bye week. So they lost to Pittsburgh 52-21. They did beat North Carolina 45-22. They played Clemson very close. Uh, they had a first game loss to Northern Illinois at home. Chris Horn, what are you looking for from uh, the Yellow Jackets? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the same. It's almost like the same story uh, almost every week with every ACC team. Uh, Georgia Tech, you know, they have some guys who can beat you. Jeff Sims, the quarterback immediately comes to mind um, in that regard. You know, Georgia Tech, you know, they always play UVA scrappy. Like, I feel like the last time they played uh, was in Charlottesville two years ago. And I think Virginia won like 28 to 23 or something like that. And that was, uh, you know, with Bryce Perkins in the 2019 season. And I think that was a little bit more uncomfortable than fans were hoping for. And I could see the kind of same thing for whatever reason is these two teams kind of, you know, unlike Virginia versus Duke, it seems like these two teams always kind of uh, engage in, in good football games. And it's it's usually closer than than expected. However, again, I think same story again with me. If, if Virginia's offense is clicking, I think they're, they're very tough for anybody to slow down uh, over the course of the game. I mean, we saw Wake Forest hold them, hold UVA to 17 points, but especially with what Armstrong and those guys have shown, you know, from the end of the Louisville game through Duke, obviously Virginia's on a roll offensively. So that, again, I think it's going to be hard for Georgia tech to stop, but again, I think Georgia tech's scrappy. They have some, some good linebackers, but you know, they haven't made a whole lot of plays, uh, you know, in terms of like turnovers and, and things like that. They have forced like nine fumbles and I believe recovered maybe six or so, but um, so, you know, maybe uh, ball security is something to watch out for for Virginia. But again, I think Virginia's offense is going to be tough. But again, looking at Georgia Tech's offense, uh, I think we saw in the game two years ago, Georgia Tech hit a big pass play for a touchdown. So that's going to be, again, like I, as I mentioned earlier, that's going to be something that is going to be a challenge for Virginia. Can they keep up against teams that have the speed to break big plays? Can they, you know, prevent those big plays, play consistently most of the game? Sims is really good. I mean, I think most a lot of the offense goes through him. He's kind of, you know, hot and cold, uh, but he's a guy who's definitely a legit running threat, kind of more of a streaky passer, but you know, still completes over 60% of his passes. But in terms of, um, you know, passing effectiveness, he's, he's kind of streaky in that regard, but definitely a guy who, if he gets going, can definitely help Georgia Tech put up some points. And again, they have some guys who can, you know, from the receiver position, one thing I noticed just checking them out is they have several guys averaging around 15, 16 yards per catch. So that tells me that they have some pop in that passing game that, uh, you know, Virginia's going to have to be ready for. So as far as Sims goes, guys, he's 50 of 80 with 791 yards, six touchdowns, four interceptions. And I just saw that line because what I'm looking at kind of compares him and, and Armstrong side by side here. I mean, that's kind of like Armstrong playing like a two-game stretch. 
800 yards, 50 of 80. That sort of sounds like the, a couple of weeks for, uh, for Armstrong. That's been Sims the whole year so far, six games in. Is it still, uh, you know, these video game numbers that Armstrong's putting up? Jeff Collins in his third year as, as coach for Tech, is he running, is he opening up the pass game a little bit more than they traditionally had always, you know, been this run, 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 and then maybe once in 100 plays they'd throw a pass, it seemed like, but they're a little more diversified now, right, offensively? Yeah, I mean, well, transitioning from the triple option uh, threat, I think certainly has been like a, a challenge for for Coach Collins. But, yeah, I mean, uh, they're definitely more traditional now, but, you know, still have that running ability, and uh, they are leaning on the run uh, this year um, as well. You know, again, Sims is the guy as far as um, as far as rushing is concerned. Uh, Jameer Gibbs, though, is kind of he he leads the team in rushing, but he's only averaging three point six yards per carry. Whereas you look at uh, Jeff Sims, he's second on the team in rushing, averaging almost seven yards per carry. So he's kind of yeah, he's kind of the do it all threat, kind of like Bryce Perkins was for Virginia, and he obviously did it very well for Virginia. So you know, Sims is a uh, you know guy who came into the season with some pretty high expectations I think and uh, I think he still you know is is recognized as a very talented and dynamic player it's just about being uh, consistent um, and having kind of the tools around him to to, to do that so again I think he's going to be you know the guy to key on kind of similar to the way Malik uh, Cunningham was for Louisville and and then you know again I think Georgia Tech does have some some decent receivers, Carter and McGowan. Again, those two guys, uh, you know, averaging uh, 16, 15 yards per catch. Again, so that tell I think they're a team that they they like to take, uh, you know, certainly some deep shots, and I think they have the the talent to do that. It's just a, you know, there's you know, consistency is kind of their main key. Don't you think they should throw it more, Jeff? <laughs> they're not. Who Tech? Georgia Tech. Georgia us. Tech, right? Like everyone screams for balance. They don't sound very balanced to me. <laughs> Like, and you gotta, you gotta keep everybody honest. I think they do need to throw it more. (laughs) (laughs) That number shocks me, by the way, I hadn't looked at their stats, you know, right at 800 yards passing for the season is mind blowing to me. Brennan Armstrong had had 554 yards passing against North Carolina. So (laughs) two thirds or 75% of the season total for, for Sims, that is just a crazy stat from one game. So that clearly show you the contrast in styles, just that number. You know what I mean? So it'll be interesting to see what Virginia chooses. Do they overcompensate for the run? And does that leave them vulnerable to big passes? Or do they just kind of umbrella everything, keep everything in front of them? As long as Sims doesn't break a big one or uh, a, another run doesn't break big. If, if, you know, if you got so much attention on Sims and then that's what happened against Louisville, right? So many, so much attention on Cunningham that the running back twice had huge cutback alleys, had over a hundred yards on two carries. Right. So is there a little bit of that, but do they kind of umbrella everything and just keep it all in front of them and say, Hey, can you run the ball consistently for four or five, six yards per carry? We don't think you can beat us through the air. Is that the choice they make? Or do they kind of try to jam everything up, run blitz and do all that and just dare you to win over the top. It'll be interesting to see uh, which choice they make. It'll probably vary. It usually varies, but what's the larger percentage of choice they make uh, defensively to try to deal with it. Yeah, Georgia Tech is averaging about 234 yards passing per game. I know Sims has played four games. I know he he was banged up for a little bit, so they oh, okay. used, uh, Jordan Yates, but still 234. That's kind of almost laughable <laughs> when you're comparing to Brennan Armstrong, uh, <laughs> who had what 296 at the half against Duke. So uh, yeah, all those conversation just kind of just uh, it's just so amazing the what Brennan Armstrong is doing out there. I mean, you look at last year, you know, kind of inconsistent. You know, to go from where he was last year to what he's doing this year, you know, minus like Lavelle Davis, I think, I mean, I think there are other factors for sure. Again, I'm, you know, Rayshon Henry, Billy Kemp really sh- taking a step forward, Dontavian Wicks. Yeah, frankly, I think playing better than Lavelle Davis played last year. Jelani Woods coming in, so a lot of weapons around him. But what Brent Armstrong is doing this year is just, uh, it's even hard to grasp right now how how well he's playing. So his season low is 268, by the way. So 268 yards is his season low for passing. That was at Miami. He's nine and three as a starter in his last 12 games. So after starting the season really slow last year, including, you know, getting knocked out of the North Carolina State game, missing the Wake Forest game. So, you know, those two. But after he came back, decent performance against Miami. And then suddenly like a light bulb, 
because since then it's been, you know, nine and three is a starter yards everywhere, touchdowns everywhere, not quite as many interceptions. Although I thought he got away with at least one against Duke, maybe two that could have been intercepted. He's just like a totally different guy. He's on a different level. It's bringing up topics on the message board where fans are going, does he leave? Does he go after this year, even though he could come back for two more? What round of the draft would he project to? And there's some threads like that going on. Is he a top three round pick or is he round four through seven pick? Is he the best quarterback in the ACC, like Bronco Mendenhall says? Is he a Heisman candidate? Should there be a Heisman campaign? Like all of, that turn from where he started last year through now is just unreal to watch the, the slope that he's on. Yeah, wasn't it Dabo Swinney who said this, made the Steve Young comparison, I think, last year? <laughs> now, uh, I think everybody kind of had the reaction we just had. We kind of just chuckled about it, which, you know, you can't compare anybody to a Hall of Famer, but it kind of seems a little bit more maybe real, I guess, as far as like in terms of his potential as an NFL prospect. So, yeah, I think that's creeping into the picture. I mean, you know, it seems like uh, we're hearing now is like, why is he not more of a serious contender for the Heisman and things like that? So, yeah, he's, he's starting to really enter that national conversation, and that's only going to continue if he continues the the streak that he's on. Well, and the standards for these NFL guys, I mean, I watch a little bit of the analysis. I don't get too into the whole draft hype and Mel Kuyper and all these guys, but, man, they are just so – I mean, you got to be bionic, you know, like – they don't, there's no margin for error. Like you have to be, and some of these guys that were picked in the first round have seen some pretty immediate success in the NFL. But so, so it's a, it's an incredibly high standard that, that he's being held to, to, to take it to that next level. And, you know, you do look at the a stat line against a pretty, you know, bad team like Duke, there were 20 incompletions. He was 25 of 45. And again, I'm not, it's just one of those things. Like if you're going to, take it to that next level this upcoming game is one of those games where I think you need to show out and and have a you know those last four games even if you become bowl eligible here this last month of the season is the what I've been dreading the entire season no matter how the first part went these last four or five games are are tough ones for uh, for the who's so shout out to Wicks seven receptions 125 yards great to see him back after he had to Missed the last game with the, the concussion protocol, and and he's taken a couple of hard hits in the previous two games. So great to see him uh, catch a touchdown. Woods, like you said, the, the great end zone catch. He had 58 yards, another five receptions. Kemp, I mean, what a solid guy. <laughs> you can just count on him. Uh, I almost would like to not see him return kicks anymore because <laughs> he's starting to take hits there. It's like, that dude is too important, man. Can we, can we maybe have somebody else to return the kicks? <laughs> Uh, but uh, six receptions, 65 yards for him. As usual, Armstrong just spreading the ball around. Thompson, 47 yards passing. Henry only caught one ball, but it was a 25-yard reception. So, you know, fields has looked good. And do we have a prognosis on Davis? Is he going to maybe come back for these last couple of games? Have you guys heard any rumblings there, or is it too early to say? We don't have an update yet on that. The projection all along has been possibly a late-season return. So if you're looking at an early April injury, six months, we're there now. And you can be back from an ACL in six to seven months now. I would not advise it. I don't think you're, you're 100% at six months, but you can come back from that. By the time they get back from BYU and take a week off, though, it'll be seven and a half months. And I know that sounds trivial, six months versus seven and a half months. But that's a huge difference from my experience watching athletes as they come back from this. That also keeps open the possibility of play the last three and a postseason game, and you could still redshirt if he ends up wanting it. I have mm. a hard time thinking he's going to be here for the extra year anyway at the talent right. level he's at, but it leaves the door open versus closing it automatically. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how how that plays out with him, but that's kind of the little the little thing with Brennan that's been there all along. And I remember vaguely writing this either in an article or, or on the message board in the offseason – He's got to get his completion percentage up. Three of his last four games, he completed 55 or 56% of his passes. So uh, Wake Forest, 33 of 59. Miami, 25 of 44. Duke, 25 of 45. And that's kind of an area that he sometimes dips down into, that mid-50s to upper 50s range versus what it's been in all these other games. Now, he's putting up yards and points and touchdowns no matter what, and that's the most important part. But completion percentage is one to watch because it keeps the sticks moving and, and all of that. 
he's at 64%, 63.8% for the season, which is a good number. So as long as he stays around there for the season, you can accept these little strings because that happens. I mean, if you're going to throw the ball 45, 50, 60 times, there's going to be some incompletions. There's going to, there's going to be some games that are a lower percentage games. The good thing about Duke, I thought, was some of those incompletions were purposeful. He threw at least a couple away to, to avoid the sack. And that's something that yeah. fans have been saying, hey, man, every now and then you just got to get rid of it. And I thought yeah. he did do that against Duke. So that's a good thing that shows that maybe he, yeah, he is still learning. He is still getting a feel for when to do what. He is a little more mobile, it looked like to me. He did score that running touchdown, dough for the pylon. There was another one where he got out and ran early in the game. And maybe that's buying him that little bit of extra mobility to be able to get that little bit of extra space to be able to throw it away. Because remember, you got to get out of the tackle box to do that. So yeah, so it's something to keep an eye on. If, if three of the last four, if it becomes five of the last seven or something, that could be a problem against some of these future opponents if he's only hitting around 55, 56%. We'll, we'll see if this is a trend or not. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, yeah, great so far and certainly, uh, but yeah, the uh, a huge test in November with uh, Pittsburgh, Notre Dame, Virginia Tech, all pretty good defenses uh, that he'll be going against. So that's going to be a really interesting matchup to watch uh, in November. Like you said, guys, I mean, he had a 25-yard run, rushed for 34 yards overall. That includes some of the sack yardage, obviously, with the, the quarterback. But, you know, he's a big dude, 6'2", 215. He's about the biggest running back we have, right? I mean, he weighs a little bit more than Thompson even. So it's exciting to have that option. And I feel like maybe that option has been used more effectively overall this year. Would you guys say? I mean, that obviously leads to more passing, maybe some more completions, perhaps more interceptions. So you're taking that trade off. But I feel like overall he's been smarter or they've been more protective of him running so many uh, quarterback option runs. Am I way off base there? No, he's, he's been running less. I think some of it was whatever that early season knee tweak deal was, probably like an MCL sprain or something like that. That's a blind guess, but based on the type of brace he's wearing, it's in that territory at least, right? So I think part of that was that part of it. I also think, you know, the backup quarterback situation, you don't keep time wearing a cast. Lindell Stone's not here. <laughs> like the two, the two guys behind, Jay Wolfolk and Ira Armstead, just don't have a lot of experience. So they did that a little bit a couple of years ago when Brennan was hurt. They were cautious with Perkins for several games in a row, just because the next one down on the depth chart, they didn't feel as comfortable about what that would mean. So I think there was some of that going into the decisions as well. I also think some of it is Brennan's just developed. He's got a better feel for when to take off. Is it necessary? Can I just throw it out there and let Billy Kemp take the, the hard hit and get six yards versus me take a hard hit and get five yards? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think he's just gotten a little bit smarter himself about the decision-making. We've got some athletes that could potentially back him up that probably do need to get some experience in these, these type of games. Hopefully we'll have a couple more of these type of games where we could do that. Right, Chris Horn? <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, they note, yeah, Armstrong sat the whole fourth quarter, which was pretty nice. So <laughs> uh, we're not used to seeing that. And then, yeah, it was, I mean, what was interesting was that Ira Armstead wasn't the first quarterback out there on the field. It was Jay Wolfolk, true freshman out of, out of uh, Benedictine in Richmond, uh, Virginia. So yeah, and he, you know, small sample size, as Chris mentions it, but as far as like, one thing I've liked about Jay, or one thing I liked in watching, he seemed pretty poised out there and showed pretty good, you know, ability to run the football and decision making and, and things like that. So um, you know, obviously very, very small sample size, but that was interesting. And then Coach Mendenhall kind of followed that up when he was asked about Wolfuck on uh, uh, his Monday at his Monday press conference and said, which was eye opening to me, that he's uh, currently Brennan's successor, which currently Ira Armstead is still listed as his backup. And that was kind of still the thinking at the start of the season. So it seems like uh, Wolfuck's, you know, made some headway, uh, certainly in practice and has continued to uh, continue to impress. And again, I think things that I noticed so far, you know, his ability to run and some seems to have pretty uh, pretty good poise to him which is something I heard from his coach at a at a when uh, back in high school at Benedictine as a freshman at Benedictine he's uh, his coach Greg Lilly mentioned that seniors and juniors were looking up to him even though he was a freshman you know sophomore uh, young guy so that kind of speaks to his uh, poise and, and uh, kind of leadership ability so maybe it's not a, a big surprise that he's transitioned well uh, to Virginia well in the the matchup predictor uh, ESPN's football power index gives UVA a 69% chance to win in the spread 
is actually a UVA seven point favorite. So there you go. The over under 62. And uh, there you go. We will get into uh, the blue and white scrimmage news and notes. Chris Wright was in attendance and a lot of new faces out there. So that will be coming up here on our next segment of the Sabre.com podcast. It's your number one online source as a Virginia fan, the Sabre.com. And we're back here on the Sabre.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman joined by Chris Wright and Chris Horn each week, breaking down the who's and well, uh, basketball preseason polls are coming out and folks may have already seen that uh, UVA ranked number 25 in the AP poll to start off the season. And there are a few ACC teams ahead of them. Florida State 20, North Carolina 19, and Duke all the way up at number nine. These are the preseason poll numbers. Virginia Tech did get some votes. Uh, how does it all shake down with the preseason ACC poll rankings uh, within the conference? Chris Wright, those numbers have just come out. Yeah, so Duke picked to win the conference. Florida State second, North Carolina third, Virginia fourth, Virginia Tech fifth, Louisville sixth, Syracuse seven. Notre Dame 8, NC State 9, Georgia Tech 10, and then Clemson, Miami, Wake, Pitt, Boston College to close out 10 through 15. So people expecting a big drop off from Georgia Tech, even though they have a lot of people back. They are the ACC tournament champions from last year. Obviously, Virginia had to bow out there because of what happened at the end of the year. But yeah, so Virginia, North Carolina, Florida State, Duke. Sounds about right, right? Those are the usual double buy teams or the usual contenders for the double buy teams in the ACC tournament. And that's how the preseason poll shook out. I don't think that Florida State's getting enough credit as usual. I don't think Virginia's getting enough credit as usual. You know, Duke had 47, I think, first place votes. Florida State had 14. Virginia had nine. I mean, recent history kind of shows you that Florida State and Virginia are the two teams at the end of the year that are near the top spot. So we'll see how it all shakes out. And then Kihei Clark, second team preseason All-ACC and got a few player of the year votes. He's the only guy from Virginia on the preseason ACC team which kind of makes sense. A lot of new faces for Virginia. So at the very least, maybe some of the the two transfers, Franklin and Gardner, maybe would split votes in the media or that sort of thing. So nothing too surprising in this other than Duke giving so many first place votes. I know they have a lot of talent and they have some pretty decent people back, but still like, seems like it should be a little more balanced with first place votes for Florida state if nothing else. Well, and uh, Chris, right. You were in attendance at the blue white scrimmage. What were your impressions? Seems like Beekman was one of the big stars of the show. I mean, I think that's the main takeaway for a lot of people was how well Reese Beekman played. And it makes sense. He played extremely well. The stuff that we had already seen on ball defense, I thought he was the best perimeter defender by the end of the season last year. He showed a lot of that right out of the gates here, keeping guys in front. He's got sneaky length, meaning like he seems to get his hands on a lot of basketball passes, a lot of dribbles without really getting himself out of position. That's the key part to me. Like, He's not lunging. He's not shooting the gap and getting himself all the way out of the play. He just seems to deflect it, get his hand on it. Next thing you know, he takes a one big long stride and he has the ball. One more long stride and he's two steps ahead of, of guys going the other way. So he showed all the things that, that we saw last year. And then he showed a little bit more of what we didn't see last year, meaning more drives to the basket. He had at least one nice little shot off the glass. The, the Ty Jerome, John Tell Evans development special we saw both of those guys develop that little in between off the glass shot during their career he did that and then he uh he hit a three an open three that looked pretty good so yeah Beatman definitely caught a lot of people's attention uh coming out of the gates with with the way he played yeah I think uh listening to coach Bennett on um uh, John Rothstein's uh podcast yeah he, he mentioned that you know with, with Reese and with like guys like Caden Shedrick um, you know, some guys who are experienced, but, you know, kind of th- this is their year to step up. It's going to be about playing, and this is kind of paraphrasing here, but playing with confidence. Like when you get, when you have like an open shot, be ready to shoot it and shoot it. And so that's going to be, you know, important for those guys, of obviously not just to shoot the ball, but to make, make the shot. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited uh, about Reese and his potential this year. Obviously he's got to, you know, show his ability, um, not just necessarily from three, but if he can have a you know, nice little runner floater type thing, you know, I think he could be really take a huge leap, which I think is he's going to be obviously important overall, but, uh, you know, for that backcourt, um, Kia, you know, it's interesting. Uh, he struggled with his shot so much toward the end of last year, but it sounds like he's really put so, a, a ton of effort into this off season. So I'm really anxious to see how he's going to bounce back from last season. I thought toward, especially the latter half 
that he really struggled with his his offense and his shot. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, if there's any tweaks in terms of how he is used or different ways to kind of get him uh, shots or something like that. But, like, I'm anxious to see how he's going to bounce back and steely resolve that he's going to have. But, again, uh, you know, some other players that we got to see more of, you know, Caden Shedrick, uh, you know, it looks like he's, you know, playing some some back to the basket, more post moves, but he also kind of displayed his ability to kind of have that little Mike Scott jumper uh, in his bag of, of uh, offensive abilities. And again, I like his movement and how he, how well he how fluid he is. You know, Armand Franklin and Jaden Gardner are gonna you know the transfers. Those are guys are going to be huge. Chris, I'm interested 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 to hear your take on on those guys. I thought Gardner. You know, again, as I mentioned, I believe last week, I think he's going to bring energy to the team. And I think you saw that a little bit in the blue-white scrimmage, at least uh, in the highlights, him getting on the boards. And he just seems to have the, just kind of an ener- energetic presence about him. And he looked like he was in pretty good shape than what I had seen uh, previously at ECU, which I think is promising. And then Franklin, again, uh, another guy who's going to be uh, a real big help defensively as well as needed offensively with, uh, with that, as much firepower as UVA lost last year from the perimeter. Well, do you foresee, um, obviously, Beekman, Clark, Franklin, we expect those three guys to see a lot of playing time. I'm picturing that lineup, man. I don't envy any opponent coming in and wanting to try to run their normal offense against those three guys, basically harassing every single dribble, right? That was one of my biggest takeaways. You know, so Reese Beekman was the thing that jumped off the page to everyone. And then if you saw any of the little Twitter highlights or the, the highlights package, Reese just jumped out to people because of what he was doing offensively. But what jumped out to me was Franklin and Beekman combined is going to be a problem for opponents. They both are very, very good at containing the dribble. It is going to be hard to get past those guys. They are disciplined. They're on balance. I was really impressed with Franklin defensively. And you worry about, you know, how does that transition into the pack line? Well, he played the pack line at Indiana. Now it's not Tony Bennett's pack line, meaning maybe it's not quite as demanding. If it was, maybe they wouldn't have a new coach at Indiana. But the, Coach Bennett is more demanding with his pack line. But the the scheme is the scheme. I mean, it, there are certain rules to it. There are certain pieces to it. And then you make little adjustments within within game plans, but he was really good. Positioning was good. Ball containment was good. And if those two guys are out there defending, yeah, look out, look out. And honestly, I thought he had a better offensive game than people realized too, but the defense really jumped off the page to me. Well, he uh, tied, or Gardner, I guess, tied Beekman for points, 17 points I think they both had, but, you know, hard to quantify certain things in games like these. But, you know, fans are worried about, oh, is small ball, is that a thing of the past? Like all of these, you know, six, nine guys that are playing point guard and whatever around the country and, you know, even translating to the NBA game. But if you look back, the national champions, right? Baylor just put it on Gonzaga in the title game, as we all remember. Their starting lineup, 6-2, 6-3, 6-4, They did have one guy that was, I think, 6-10. But I mean, nobody else was over six five. That's incredible, and you know right. those those guys were amazing athletes. But that just goes to show you, if you, hard nosed defense can get get you a long way. Right, and Virginia can put that kind of lineup out there: Beekman, Franklin, Statman, Gardner. That's a bunch of guys between six three and six eight. And then you could put a Shedrick in there as your mobile extra. They can put that type of lineup out there if they want to in terms of late. Now Statman's not the same kind of quick twitch athlete but he's a very good defender within Virginia's system. So I don't think he would be a great defender in Baylor's system, but in Virginia's system, he's a very good defender. And that, that was something I was watching for going in. Is he going to be a factor? I think so. I think so. He might be the sixth man. His positioning was great. His defense was really good. Hit some open threes. He gave them the ability with the lineups they had split between the blue and white to play small ball. He did play some four where he was a screener. And one of the threes he hit was pick and pop, screen for somebody else pop away, do the Evan Nolte special, right? <laughs> Slide out to the wing and knock it down. So, so there, there's that potential in there w- with Statman. So yeah, it's a little interesting things coming out with, with the type of lineups they could put out there this year. You start getting the first glimpses during the blue and white scrimmage. I think it's hard to get a read on these types of scrimmages. But Chris, interested to hear, uh, I saw Carson McCorkle made some, made some baskets. Uh, he's a guy that, you know, kind of Pseudo Red didn't play much last year, uh, but also, you know, Igor Milicic is a guy we've talked about a lot and Tane Murray. Any thoughts on those guys? 
McCorkle started a little slow, missed a couple of open shots, but then hit a couple late. So he definitely has that, that combustibility, I'll call it. He looks like a guy that can get really hot shooting the basketball, and that could be valuable. You've got Tane Murray, who's similar in terms of position that they might play, a little different style, a little more rugged, maybe not quite as like quick release combustible, but looks like a guy that can shoot. Looks like a guy that got to the basket a couple of times. So to me, those two guys are going to be jockeying for position a lot all year. And it could be different game to game who plays well. And that has shades of Devin Hall and Muriel Shayok. And uh, even last year, a little bit, there were some shades of jockeying for position, right? I feel like those two guys might Right. They might be in that boat a little bit this year, you know, to see who is that eighth or ninth guy or, or do they sneak up and become the sixth man by January or whatever. But I think early season, it'll be Statman. I'll be curious to see which one of those guys kind of wins that derby as they go back and forth. Or do they both elevate and then you can use them both for for short stints each half. And then if they're productive, how much better does that make the bigger picture? Igor Milicic looked OK, didn't look as good as I thought he might. Um, I'm curious to kind of see where where his development goes. I don't think I have enough sample size yet to have a real opinion. So do you see Igor as more of a catch and shoot guy, or it sounds like he had a pretty diverse game coming in, but he didn't really get to showcase too much, I guess, in this kind of game. He played a little bit of both, meaning pick and pop type. There was an inbounds play where he he popped out and shot a three. So he did a little bit of that, but there was also a little bit of driving, a little bit of kind of inside game. So I think there's still probably a feeling out process going on from all parties, from his angle, from the coach's angle, from the fans angle, you know, just what exactly do you have in this kind of six ten body that can do a lot of things. He can shoot, he can dribble a little bit to be that big. Exactly where does that put him for this year's team? Long-term, it could go all kinds of directions and that's kind of up to his development and Mike Curtis and, and all those things. But, you know, the, the question is how quickly can he get up to speed for this year and does he surpass anybody? Does it give, you know, he, he has a little bit of a Shedrick vibe, meaning mobile with size. And he looks a little bit like Shedrick looked last year, meaning skinny <laughs> um, versus now where Shedrick looks like a lot more muscular, stronger dude. He has a little bit of that vibe or you know, how, how to use Kafaro, how to use Milicic, how to use Shedrick. Those are your three tallest kind of mix and match players. Just how does all that play out? Because I think Kafaro has some value because of he's trimmed down a little bit, looks a little more mobile. Milicic is skinnier, more mobile, but can't really bang as much. Like Gardner banged against him a couple of times and it was like, you know, senior versus freshman. That's exactly what it looked like. <laughs> like it, no doubt about it. So where, where, does, where does the path go this year? I think he's valuable. I don't know how many minutes that'll mean or if it'll mean some games he plays, some games he doesn't. Like, I just don't don't really have a real good feel for that after one, you know, half an hour viewing period to, to kind of start getting a feel for, for what he might be for Virginia. Well, and one outlet said that uh, as far as Shedrick goes, 14 points, and they said he uh, dominated his matchup with the 7-1, 242-pound uh, Kafaro. Would you characterize it that way? I mean... Shedrick's 6'11", 231. Dominated is a strong word to me, but he definitely had the better of the matchup, I thought. I thought he was better than Kafaro, more consistent than Kafaro throughout the afternoon. That part for sure. He scored over both shoulders, turned left and hit a righty hook, turned right and hit a lefty hook, both over Kafaro. Now, Kafaro also hit one over him, but I, I do think Shedrick was a little more consistent throughout the afternoon. I think he provides a little more quick twitch explosiveness the ability to switch. We, I think we saw Shedrick switch onto some guards at times here. And, and I think that's a possibility that doesn't really exist with Kafaro. And I think with certain opponents, you know, like Shedrick's going to be a lot more valuable because I do think he is more mobile, can cover more ground. I thought they both did a pretty good job of providing rim presence, which is a kind of a question on people's mind it, with Huff now gone, who is the, the rim protector type. And I think they both gave off a little bit of that vibe uh, Kafaro a little bit with the, the Jack Salt volleyball style, right? Where you go over and you jump straight up. Uh, Shedrick had a little bit of that going on as well. So it may not be Huff style where you stand flat-footed and block shots, right? But they both did give that Jack Salt vibe where they, they got up and provided some rim protection. thought Kafaro was late a couple times, you know, like in rotations in terms of rim protection. So just early season stuff that's normal from both. I didn't see, you know, dominant right off Kafaro. I didn't get that vibe from it. 
Well, congrats to uh, Huff, by the way, getting, uh, I think, two-way contract from the Lakers as those last-minute decisions were being made. Just selfishly, I was hoping for, for him to stick with the Wizards because it'd be a little closer for uh, for UVA fans to go up the road to see him 40-sometimes a year if he, if he made the big club. But uh, congrats to him. And, yeah, so Shedrick, uh, Chris Horn, I'm thinking about him, and I'm just so looking forward to seeing him get a full year, hopefully. He's at, you know, battled mono and whatever – injuries and things so he hasn't really been out on the court a whole lot as much as uh, we would have liked obviously but he just brings so much to the table talent wise I'm not sure have we had a guy like him I mean the big guys we've had previously don't seem to have as much of an offensive skill set as he brings meaning he can shoot <laughs> outside shots maybe a little better but um just overall I don't, I'm not sure Tony Bennett has had a player like this to this point. What do you think? It just, I mean, from a, from a talent perspective, yeah. I mean, you got to see if he can put it together on the court, but in terms of a guy who consistently uh, feels comfortable as at least anyway, with, you know, back to the basket post moves, as well as being able to, um, you know, kind of take it out and make that, make a mid range jumper. I'm not sure quite what his range is as far as if it actually goes out to like three point range at this point, but um, yeah. And I think he's a guy with a, a lot of skills. It was really unfortunate last year that, uh, you know, obviously with his illness that he was sidelined for so much, because I think that would have been a really great experience for him to be able to, to get some uh, more basketball feel, you know, get some more experience playing on this level, uh, considering I think he is going to be such an important factor this year. But no, he's got definitely an intriguing skill set. I think I see him certainly and and, and Jaden Gardner, both both those guys being in the starting lineup. And I think those guys both offer intriguing offensive skill sets. So if they can get if Caden can be consistent and uh, you know show his ability to score, and you combine that with a guy who's who's really proven himself in, in Gardner, that's going to be an intriguing duo uh, and a tough duo for opponents to have to face up, especially, and it could be very welcomed, you know, especially if, if UVA doesn't have, isn't going from three-point range like like they need to be. They may need to work inside, inside out. So they may have two guys capable of helping them do that. Well, let's go back to Franklin, Chris Wright. You know, he comes in with a pretty good pedigree as far as three-point shooting, right? Over 40% at Indiana. We're going to need that, I think, to make up for the loss of, of Hauser and Murphy and Huff. Those guys are so solid from behind the line and consistent. And the modern game, like we talk about with football, you got to be able to shoot those threes to stay in games. So McCorkle, like you said, sounds like a kind of that spark plug off the bench. And I agree. I think we're going to see a whole lot of Statman this year. So you're telling me that losing two 40, 50, 90 guys are right, right on the, right I mean, on the line you know, for Hauser, but we'll plug- count it. <laughs> just that, that's in, a big you know. deal you mean <laughs> franklin can do that right yeah lo- losing no pressure <laughs> two nba level shooters and hauser and murphy are both two nba level shooters whether they have long careers in the nba or not that skill is nba level that's a big deal so that is something that fans i think are a little bit freaked out about if i'm <laughs> being honest it feels like fans are worried that this is going to be an ugly offensive year and they don't have anybody that can shoot and all these sort of things I think that's a little bit overstated. I, I do think it's not nearly as good as last year. I think it's similar to when Key and Diakite left. The defense is not going to be nearly as good, right? There's going to be a swing. The question is, how far does that pendulum swing? Last year, I thought the defensive pendulum swung much farther than I thought it would. I think they had more issues than I thought they would. How much did COVID play into that? I don't know, but it doesn't matter. I went into it thinking they would be a little better defensively than they were. So three-point shooting this year. I think they're going to be a little bit better than people think shooting the three. Franklin's part of that. I think he's a good shooter. Even the shots he missed in this scrimmage, I thought looked good. McCorkle's shots, I thought looked good. Uh, Milicic's shots, I thought looked pretty good. So the question is, does any of this translate to games? We won't know until we see it, but I think they're going to be better three-point shooting than people are anticipating Franklin, Statman, Beekman, I think will be better. I actually think Clark is going to be better. I think he's going to play off the ball more. I don't think he's going to play off the ball only, which is, I think, what some of the impressions from this weekend gave people is that the keys are now in Reese's hands and Kihei will be forever on the, the wing. I don't think we're going to see that. The one thing that I that I got from this is that, yes, he is going to play off the ball more. And I think that will help his shooting. I think he is better as a catch and shoot guy than a pull-up guy, but they worked in a lot of ball screens in this scrimmage, a lot of ball screen, not just calls where it's 
early ball screen and then motion, it seemed like a lot of it built into other concepts. So that's what I took more than anything. There looks like three guys, Franklin, Clark, Beatman, that can play out of ball screens, and they're going to incorporate it into the offense, just like they always do. They tailor to the strengths. And I think that's going to be a strength of this team, playing out of ball screens. And I think that plays right into Beatman's wheelhouse. I think it, we've seen it with Clark, and I think Franklin can do it. What ball screens do is it collapses the defense. And the types of shots you're going to be getting are going to be different than the shots that Hauser and Murphy were getting, right? They're so good, high release, didn't really matter if you were there. These guys may get more open shots because of the collapsing defense. We'll see. What did you think, Chris, of, uh, of Gardner in terms of w- one of my questions about him was in terms of how he would adapt defensively. So I'm anxious to hear your opinion on, on that end. But again, it seems like he seems like he's a guy who's going to bring some energy and um, you know, rebounding. And I really liked his ability around the basket as far as um, you know, with his hands. I think he's got really sneaky good hands around the basket uh, in terms of offensive perspective. But again, I thought he, he looked better physically. I'm anxious to hear what what uh, how you thought he looked defensively and how that may factor in this year. Well, I think you're wrong. I don't think his hands are sneaky good. I think they're just good. Okay. I don't think there's anything <laughs> sneaky. I don't think there's anything sneaky about it. Like he like reminded me Kawhi of Kawhi Leonard. You can just right? see like, him coming from out. He reminded me of, of Sollinger from Ohio State, right? I remember watching Sollinger in the top 100 camp and going, man, anything near that dude, he comes up with. Post-entry pass, a little bit off, soaks it up. Rebound, goes and gets it. There's like magnets or something. Gardner has that vibe with his hands. If the ball is near his hands, he gets it. That's rebounding and otherwise. That, that part was interesting. Defensively, I thought he was good. He switched more than I thought maybe they would. And I don't know if that's just a scrimmage thing, but that gives – an ability that they didn't really have last year. I didn't think they could switch effectively last year. So if Gardner can do it, and, and Shedrick, we already mentioned maybe a little bit, suddenly if you can switch one through five or even one through four, that's a different defensive look you can give the pack line versus always having to hard hedge or, or soft hedge or make the choice of what kind of hedge and all that. You can just switch it. And the championship year, they did a lot of switching. So that was interesting. I thought he was pretty good defensively. The one thing that really jumped out offensively to me, okay, everyone's question is, you know, East Carolina, different league, ACC size, Florida State's got four zillion seven-footers, right? Like, how is, how is he going to deal with that? Well, he was going against 6'10 Milicic. He was going against Shedrick, seven-foot Kafaro. Those guys are not Florida State guys, so don't get me wrong, but they are tall and link, lengthy players, and they do crowd you. Virginia defensive system wise. And he didn't seem to have much problem with it. And here's why the one way you can shorten a shot blocker's arms is to move him away from you. And Gardner is really physical. You know what I mean? So he, he would bump somebody and they would lose a foot, a foot and a half, two feet of space. And then he's up with it, gets it up and out of his hands quickly, which eliminates some of the length problems. Right. So I, I, that impressed me. He's a lot more physical, even knowing it, seeing on highlight film, seeing it live with your own eye for the first time. I was like, man, he's he's a load. He's going to he's going to knock you out of the way. He's going to bump. He's going to use quick feet to kind of spin and bump you and get just enough of a of a, of a angle or room to get a shot up. I don't think that's going to be as much of a problem as people think. Would you compare him maybe to uh, Isaiah Wilkins or, you know, obviously more offensively skilled in some ways, but style of play i'm trying to compare you know past eras he seems like a guy gardner seems like a guy that maybe we haven't seen yet in the tony bennett era too very physical right so you mean a a shorter post player that's that's why wilkins would be the comparison there yeah, isaiah yeah. was not super tall either gardner reminds me of sullinger's hands he's getting a lot of anthony gill comparisons in terms yeah. of virginia uh comparisons because he does have post moves yeah he, he can he can bump you. He can spin. He can face jab, step, and go. He can he can shoot a little pull up. He can do different things, right? So he does have a little bit of an Anthony Gill vibe, a little bit of a Diakite vibe, and some of the footwork down there, right? Maybe Darion Atkins with some of the footwork down there. So yeah, there's some interesting comparisons. I don't think there's an exact comparison. He's physical like Gill, but he's quicker, maybe a smidge quicker than Anthony was. Also not quite as big as Anthony height-wise, I don't think. So a little right. Isaiah Wilkins vibe there. I, it's interesting. I don't know that there's an exact comp, but he definitely is not afraid of contact. And I think he knows how to use it. That's important. Not being afraid of it is one thing. In other words, you don't mind if someone bumps you. But if you're the one doing the bumping and knowing how to use it, that's a totally different, different deal than just not being afraid of contact. Yeah, that's something we haven't seen a whole lot of in – the entire Tony Bennett era, I would say. So I'm, I'm super excited about these guys. And 
Do we want to get into starting lineups or we'll save that for next week? <laughs> yeah, we can talk Potential about it next week, lineups. but listen, it's it's Clark, Beatman, Franklin, Gardner, Shedrick. I would be yeah. shocked if it's any other lineup. That's yep. who started the, the scrimmage on the white team together. They were up 15 to zero oh as starters. So if something changes between now and November the 9th, I would be surprised. Seems like the real question is, and I, I agree, it sounds it seems like Statman is the best candidate to be the sixth man at this point is the depth. You know, where's that going to come from? McCorkle, yeah. Murray, uh, Milicic, and and Kafaro. Anything from Poppy uh, as far as uh, you mentioned a little bit, Chris, that he looks a little bit tr more trim, uh, trimmer, I guess, or whatever you want to say, however you want to call it. But anything that you notice that he's added to his game? I just think he looks a little more mobile. He always, to me, seems a little awkward offensively, but seems to get it done. Right. So he had a couple baskets in this game where it looked like that, just a little awkward, but made the shot or a little, little off balance, but suddenly on balance and made the layup, that kind of thing. Cause I know he scored on one roll for sure, screen and roll. You know, he missed a couple down low. He did miss a couple rotations. The, the interesting part to me was Shedrick and Kafaro as the true centers on this team or sort of centers. I think Shedrick's listed as a forward technically on the roster is, is their motor, their stamina. That's a question that I think has to come up. We've, we heard it in the offseason about, Shedrick and one of the feature stories made was Jeff White's feature story. They were saying, how long can he do it? We've seen it in flashes. Can he do it, you know, in starters minutes, 20, 25, 30 minutes. Same thing with Kafara. I don't think he's more than a 20 minute per game player, regardless of his skill level. I don't know that his stamina and the style that he plays just banging on you and leaning on you and all those things. If he can go more than 20 minutes. Right. So if that's true, how do they decide, like you're saying with depth, how do you use the bodies? if those two guys can only give you X amount of minutes at terms of their max. So that, that part is interesting to me too. And that jumps out with Kafara. I'm not sure he has the motor that some guys have the Diakites, the Wilkins who just don't tire, don't, don't slow down. Even Jack saw in a sense, I don't think ever seems tired to me. Yeah. Uh, Kafaro, even as an upperclassman still seems like he has a ceiling with what his stamina is. So that'll put this edition of the Saber.com podcast in the books. Uh, one final note, did want to mention, uh, folks probably saw the news about Dick Vitale. want to wish him and, and his family the best as uh, they're in everybody's thoughts uh, with him announcing this week he's uh, been diagnosed with another form of cancer, previously having multiple surgeries for melanoma during the summer. Uh, I guess he revealed that uh, tests over the past three weeks have confirmed a diagnosis of lymphoma. It appears unrelated to his earlier cancer, but he said his prognosis is good. He will continue to work around his upcoming chemotherapy schedule. He says, with all that said, I consider myself very lucky. He is uh, 82 years young, Dick Vitale, legendary broadcaster. So uh, thinking about him this week too. And as always, like, subscribe, and share whenever you encounter a, a Who's fan here on the Saber.com podcast. Thanks, guys. Go Hoos.